6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Song of Songs with a session entitled, Marriage as God's Model of Intimacy. The man said, the woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I did eat. Now, you girls recognize that right away. The, father, the, the guy is always going to blame her for whatever it is. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. The Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly thou shalt go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. We have no idea what the Nakash was prior to this, de- this declaration by God. We only know it's after effects, if you will. But going on, God continues. He's declaring, God is declaring war on Satan. I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. The enmity of Satan, specifically against the woman, is provocative, especially when you see satanic beliefs, and cults always denigrate the woman. Think about the role of the woman in the world of Islam, and you begin to get a coloration here. Romans 5, therefore as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto the justification of life. So Our troubles started by one, but our troubles are repaired by one. As by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Praise God. Well, continuing Genesis. And unto the woman now, God turns and he says, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. That's a key point, by the way. It's amazing how many false belief systems and so forth fail to honor the fact that the husband is to rule over the woman. It's there. It won't go away. And it's going to be amplified in the New Testament as we go on. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns and thistles shall bring it forth to thee, and thou shalt eat of the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face thou shalt eat bread, till thou return unto the ground, for out of it thou wast taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living, and Adam also, and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. Here is a little verse, verse 21 that many people don't really understand. They made clothes of fig leaves, and God says, no way. He made them coats of skins and clothed them. 
Our naive first cut at this, well, okay, that's more durable, more useful as a form of clothing. No, there's something else going on here. You don't catch it here until you've read your whole Bible and come back to this and you realize what's really going on here. God is teaching them a principle. Only by the shedding of innocent blood shall they be covered. Say, Chuck, that's a pun. Absolutely. The Holy Spirit does exploit puns all through the Scripture. And once you understand that, it opens all kinds of insights. So God made them coats of skins, teaching them that by the shedding of innocent blood, they would be covered. He's not speaking just practically of raiment here. He's talking about Levitically, the, the operative here. What do we mean by fig leaves? All of us make fig leaves. Every act of religion is a fig leaf. Religion is man's attempt to reconcile himself with God. You can't do it. The most anti-religious person that ever walked the earth was Jesus Christ. That was what the young people discovered in the 70s and led to the Jesus Revolution. Fig leaves. What do we mean by fig leaves? Church going. Going to church doesn't save you. It may be useful, it's appropriate, doesn't mean it doesn't save you. Religious exercise of whatever kind? No. Ordinances, rules? No. Philanthropy? Oh, I give all my goods to put? No. That doesn't. Altruism in whatever form? No. Any personal efforts will not avail to establish your freedom from the penalty of sin. None of those things. Those are all in contrast to the only thing that does work, and that's the cross. That's God's way. And that's what's going to be revealed in the rest of the next 65 books of the 66 that we call the Bible. So that's a glimpse of Adam and Eve in the sense that they are the foundation of marriage. Let's take a look at probably the archetype. And when you start talking about types in the Bible, the classic one is Abraham's offering of Isaac in Genesis 22. And I want to get into that only to set the stage for the second part of that in Genesis 24. But let's take a look at this. In Hebrew, it's called the Akidah. Abraham's offering of Isaac. Strange story. God's asking Abraham to offer his son as an offering. Is he into his child's sacrifice? No, no. First of all, he wasn't a child. He's probably about 30 when this happened. But the point is, Abraham offers Isaac on Mount Moriah. That's in Genesis 22. And I won't try to cover the whole thing here. It's well-developed. I assume it's all by way of review for most of you. If not, you can find all about it in our materials or in Learn the Bible in 24 Hours deals with this for you. Isaac is dead to Abraham for three days. That's provocative. Many, many people missed that point of it. Abraham knew that by taking up that mountain, he was acting out a prophecy. How do I know that? Because he names the place in the Mount of the Lord, it shall be seen. He knew, he didn't understand everything about it probably, but he understood that this was somehow prophetic. That's why he named it that way. And it, it, indeed it is prophetic because 2,000 years later, on that very spot, another father actually did offer his son as an offering for sin. And he had Abraham act that out as a type, as a foreshadowing of all of that. And when you study Genesis 22, it is full of insights. Not the least of which is the name. Abraham and Isaac, of course, go home afterwards. It doesn't say that. Abraham and the young man and the donkey go home. It doesn't mention Isaac. because the name of Isaac. Isaac is personally edited out of the record for two chapters until he shows up joined with his bride, Rebecca. That's why Genesis 24 is this is so interesting. This is all covered in hour four if you learn the Bible in 24 hours. Go to chapter, chapter 23 is the death of Sarah, but then we get to chapter 24. And once again, now obviously in Genesis 22, Abraham is acting in the, as a type of the father. And Isaac is a type, of course, of the son. Now in Genesis 24, again, Abraham's in the type of the father. 
And Isaac will be implied the, the, the type of the son. And Abraham call, has his business partner, a guy by the name of Eliezer, although his name doesn't appear here, we know his name from other passages. When the Holy Spirit is in a type, he's always as an unnamed servant. We'll see him that way this way, and we'll see that in the book of Ruth. But Abraham commissions this guy, whose name happens to be Eliezer, to go and get a bride for Isaac. The name Eliezer, by the way, in Hebrew means comforter. So you get the, you get the linkage there. He goes and qualifies her by a well. She agrees to marry the unseen bridegroom. He brings her back as the bride. Along the way, he gives her gifts. And I won't get into this, but I'll ask you to think through, why did Eliezer take ten camels? And I believe that's a linkage to the ten virgins in the New Testament, but we'll move on. She joins the bridegroom at the well of Lahai Roy. From the time that Isaac is offered by Abraham until the time he joins Rebekah by the well of Lahai Roy, the well of the living water, his name is out of the record. And he's alluded to, but he's personally not in the story. until he, Which is, I think, see, the Holy Spirit's even edited the text so it fits the type, if you will, that Jesus, from the time that he's offered until the time he returns his second coming, where he comes to get his bride. See? And so, so Isaac reappears in the record when he has joined his bride in verse 62, two chapters later. Okay, so the types here, Abraham's a type of the father, Isaac a type of the son in both these cases, and Eliezer a type of the Holy Spirit. He's always unnamed, he, although he has a name, that's expressed back in Genesis 15, I think it is. Um, we know his name, but he's not named in the passage because he's always the unnamed servant, and he's going to do that. He's going to be in that same role in the book of Ruth. And he was sent to gather the bride, which, of course, what the Holy Spirit is busy doing today is gathering the bride for the son. One integrated design, one thing you learn about your Bible is the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed, and the Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. And we could talk hours and give you examples of that, but let's just, you and I, move on to perhaps one of the most charming books in the entire Old Testament. A little four-chapter uh, book called the Book of Ruth. It's back in the days of the judges. This is before Samuel, before David, all of that stuff. Many people call it the ultimate love story. And that's a term, if you go into college and just take a literature class, very frequently the Book of Ruth will be presented, not for its biblical implications, just as an elegant, um, well-crafted love story. It's, it's, it's exalted in that way alone. And um, at the literary level alone, now, once you understand prophecy and you understand your Bible, both at the prophetic level and also at the personal level, you'll discover this book is packed with secrets and discoveries that we could spend easily spend a whole weekend going over just this book. It's one of the most significant Old Testament books about the church. From a church perspective, if you look at the Old Testament, this is the one that leaps out at you for a number of reasons. Because it defines the role of what we call the kinsman redeemer. What do we mean by kinsman redeemer? This little story will explain it to us. In fact, I usually teach the idea that if you're going to study the book of Revelation, you will, you, before you get to chapter 5, you need to master this book. It's the key to understanding the book of Revelation, especially chapter 5. And so we has four chapters. The first chapter is Love's Resolve. That's where Ruth, clean, a, a, a Moabite, a Gentile, cleaves to her mother-in-law, Naomi. And uh, then we go to her response to all that, where she's gleaning. 
and then the strange thrashing floor scene we'll come to, and then her reward for her faithfulness here that ties it all together. So let's take a look at chapter 1, just quickly summarizing what goes on there. It was in the day of the judges. Famine drives the family to Moab, eastward. And uh, Naomi and Limech are, are married, and they have two sons, Malon and Kilion. The names are kind of relevant. Obviously, Naomi means pleasant land, by the way, and she becomes a type of Israel, as you'll see. And uh, Malon and Kilion are both unhealthy guys, unhealthy and puny, actually, is what their names mean, and they die having married. And they married Moabitess gals. And so Naomi has two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. And they insist upon, and things get better, after 10 years, things get better, so she, Naomi's going to return back to Bethlehem where she came from. And uh, they go, agree to go with her, and she talks them out of it. She says, you, got, you girls are still young, go have, a, go have a life. And Orpah finally yields and stays. Ruth does not, she clings to her mother-in-law. She remains with Naomi. And thus she becomes in the family tree of Christ, by the way. So, and she has this famous declaration in verse 16 of chapter 1. Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave thee, nor return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go. And where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, thy God, my God. Where thou diest, I will die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death part thee and me. What a declaration. And she's faithful to that. She clings to that, and that earns the respect of all that are in Bethlehem when they go back. And uh, so that's the first step. Now, what happens in chapter 2, one of the reasons it's such a blessing, you need to understand some of the strange laws that are operative here in ancient Israel. And they have a thing called the law of gleaning. And we'll get into that here um, in Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy 24. If you were a landowner and you had grain, you were allowed to have your reapers make one pass through it. Whatever they missed or fell by, you had to leave for the destitute. That was their approach to dealing with the welfare or the, the, the people needy. So that was called clean. The, the, the widows and the orphans could follow behind the reapers and uh, take what they missed or what fell by the wayside. That was the way it operated, okay? And so this was their provision for the destitute. Now, the text says, she happened on the field of Boaz. Now, when you teach this, you have to really understand that coincidence is not a kosher word. Nothing happens. It was destiny, God's, God's handiwork, that she happened on a field to go gleaning. She, she, she was gleaning for her mother-in-law, and so that what she, she happened on this field, not knowing the destiny, because it happens that he's a kinsman, and that's going to have profound implications to our study. And the word Boaz, by the way, means in him is strength. It happens to be the label of one of the two pillars that are named in the temple. There are two major pillars that are very prominent. One of them is Boaz and Yachin, in him, in him is strength, in him is counsel. And so Boaz is the hero of the peace. And uh, this is the guy that you would cast a, uh, um, I don't know, Russell Crowe or a Charlton Heston figure. He's the hero of the peace here. Now he is introduced to Ruth by an unnamed servant. And if you're a study of these things, you pick up right away that, aha, something's up here because the unnamed servant is typologically usually the Holy Spirit at work here. And uh, he obviously, she catches his eye. So he instructs his reapers when they reap to leave some handfuls on purpose. In other words, the fix is in. He wants to make sure she's well taken care of, invisibly, but nevertheless, the fix is in, if you will. 
So he is going to end up becoming what's called the Goel in Hebrew, the kinsman redeemer. And we'll explain exactly what requirements that were. But he's the one that by his commitment and action, he will redeem the land to Naomi and he will take her as a Gentile uh, to, uh, to wife. That'll come out later. And to understand this, you need to understand the law of redemption. Is that if there is a widow and has no issue, there is a thing called the Leverite marriage where the next of kin has the opportunity, not the requirement, but the opportunity to take her and raise up kin uh, issue to the dead man's uh, uh, estate, if you will. That's the law of redemption in Leviticus 25. That's going to be very pivotal in the plot issue that's going to unfold here. Uh, the law of redemption, the law of right marriage. Um, the, the law of redemption is, oh, has to do with the land, excuse me. Um, Naomi had sold her land when it was famine and she went to Moab some 10 years earlier. Well, uh, uh, they didn't sell land in Israel fee simple as we're used to. They did what we would call a lease. They sold its fruitfulness for a period of time. If, the, if she sold it, as they would call it, a relative, the next of kin, could come and by meeting the requirements, buy it back. back. So it always stayed within the tribe is the idea. And uh, so that was the real estate environment that they're in. They had what they call the law of redemption. A, a kinsman could um, redeem the land for Naomi now that she's back. If she can get a kinsman that, that has the money to do it, he can buy the land back for her to her benefit. Also, the law of Leverite marriage is where a is the widow without issue can be uh, dealt with by a next of kin. And both of those are going to take place here, obviously, as we get to chapter 3. And, the, and there's an interesting thing by the, in the thrashing floor, if you will. Now, Naomi, when she finds out that uh, Ruth has happened on the field of Boaz, she, being a good Jewish mother, realizes here's an opportunity that Ruth doesn't understand because she's a Gentile, but Boaz is next of kin, so he could be the mechanism by which Ruth has a life here. And so she coaches her on what to do, uh, both for the redemption of the land to Naomi, she's got her own opportunity here, but also for a new life for Ruth. That's what she immediately sees. So she instructs Ruth on exactly what to do. Now, it's kind of interesting. She hasn't met Boaz yet, but she knows the situation. Ruth doesn't know the situation, but she gets coached by understanding from from Ruth, and that's going to have from Naomi, and that's going to get important. So Ruth is to approach Boaz, and every at every harvest they had a time of thrashing. Uh, the thrashing floor was typically in a saddleback where there's a prevailing wind, and what they do is they thrash the grain and throw it to the air, and the chaff would blow down wind a little bit, and the good stuff would fall short. If you did it right, you ended up with two piles. The near pile you'd bag and get ready for market. The further one you burn for to keep away the vermin and so forth. After a day's work of that, in the evening they typically had a party, and everybody would the merchants especially would sleep there to, to guard their their merchandise. But it was sort of a, a slumber party kind of environment here. Okay, came to pass at midnight. She's going to do exactly what Naomi told her to do. Came to pass at midnight that the man was afraid. He turned himself. He's asleep and he's turning asleep. Behold, a woman lay at his feet. Because Ruth did exactly what Naomi told her to do. She went there and slept at his feet. And uh, he said, who art thou? And she answered, and here's a verse. Verse 9 is misunderstood by most people that don't have the background. 
He said, Who art thou? And she answered, I am Ruth thine handmaid. Spread therefore thy skirt over thine handmaid, for thou art a near kinsman. Many people that read this assume that she's propositioning him for a sexual, a sexual favor here. No, 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 it's much worse than that. She's putting the bite on him, so to speak, to do the kinsman's part, to take her for bride. To understand this verse, you need to understand the role of hems and skirts in that culture. In Hebrew, the word is shul, or Greek is kraspinon. It's a hem, border, fringe. You and I think of, of rank on the end of a sleeve, like an airline captain or a, or a naval officer or something. Um, in their culture, your rank in society or whatever was on the fringe of your garment. The border, the fringe, or the bottom edge carried your, your authority. In ancient Mesopotamia, to cut off the hem was to strip one of his personality or authority, what have you. A husband could divorce his wife by cutting off the hem of her robe. A nobleman could authenticate his name on a clay tablet by pressing his hem in the clay with the embroider serving as a badge. God's covenant with Israel is spoken this way in Isaiah 6, where God says, I'll spread my skirt over you, over the nation, putting his authority, his protection over it, and so forth. And the fringes on Levitical garments are an example of this all through the Torah. David's removal of Saul's hem is a big deal in 1 Samuel 24. The Lord's hem sought for healing, and the woman with the issue of blood in, in Mark 14, Mark, Matthew 14, Mark 6, and Luke 8. The woman with the issue of blood pushes through the crowd if she can just touch the hem of his garment, because in her mind, that's where his authority lay. And so uh, on it goes. So Ruth and Boaz. So Ruth is requesting Boaz to exercise his right as a kinsman and assume responsibility as a kinsman, which has two elements, the land for Naomi and her as a bride. So she approaches Boaz. To he ask, she's asking him to fulfill the role of a goel, a kinsman redeemer. But there's a problem. This is where in the plot there's a, whoops, because there is a kinsman that's closer in kinsmanship than he is. And so, you see, if, you pick the, if you're doing this as a movie, you've got maybe a, a Russell Crowe or someone as, as the, in the role of Boaz, and you've got maybe a Danny DeVita as the nearer kinsman, but he has a prior right. Boaz gives her six measures of barley to take home to Naomi. That's a code that you have to be Jewish to understand the code that he is telling Naomi that this guy, that he will not rest. See, seven is the, the seventh is the, the six is short of seven, that he will not rest until this is resolved. So he's telegraphing, and he realizes that Ruth is Gentile, but Naomi, being Jewish, would pick up on this, the six measures of barley as a code for Naomi that he will, and she, she interprets this in the next chapter. So we get to chapter four, which is the big climax here, and uh, Boaz confronts the nearer kinsman and says there's an opportunity here to do the kinsman part for Naomi. And he says, great, I'll do that. I'll buy the property for her. And that's a letdown if you're hoping for them, if you will, for Boaz and Ruth. But it turns out when he finds out there's also the issue of marrying Boaz, uh, marrying uh, Ruth is involved, he has to pass. Now that's good news for us because we're hoping to get Boaz and Ruth together. So he has to pass, and there's a, he symbolically yields his, his uh, um, requirement by giving a shoe. That was the, the way they conveyed the idea. Uh, the theory was 
that he would, she should be negotiating this, and he would give her a shoe, and she would spit in his face for not doing it, and that would be the way it was done in ancient Israel. But Boaz is in her advocacy here. He is handling all this in any case, and the, the nearer kinsman yields his shoe. So Boaz, of course, steps up. This is his big opportunity. He was hoping to have the opportunity. He's a wealthy landowner. He has no problem getting the land back to Naomi, and he takes Ruth as a bride. And by the way, Ruth is a Moabitess, and that's against the law. But what the law can't do, grace can. And that's part of the lesson here. So he purchases the land for Naomi, and he purchases, literally purchases Ruth as his bride. That's a concept that's strange in our ears, but that's the way they did things. Now, as they have this big, at the end of the chapter 4, they have this big celebration. And during the celebration, somebody says something that you and I would think is, sounds like a toast at a wedding. It's actually a prophecy, and as you study it, it's a strange remark we want to take a look at. Now, something else I want to point out that reminds you from our tutorial here on hermeneutics. The Greek mind thinks of prophecy as a prediction and a fulfillment. Prophecy is a prediction, which leads to a fulfillment. That's the, the Gentile model. The Hebrew model is a little different. Prophecy is pattern. That's why we use types so much. And the whole book of, Luke, of uh, Ruth is a type of the kinsman redeemer, just as Genesis 22 was a type of the offer of Golgotha, if you will, and so on. So the goal is the kinsman redeemer, and he had four requirements if you're going to be a kinsman redeemer. He had to be a kinsman. He had to be able to perform. He had to be willing to perform. He might be able, but he would choose not to. That's his choice. So he had, to be, he had to be a kinsman, member of the family. That's why Jesus had to be a man. Because when you get to uh, Revelation chapter 5, no man was found worthy to open the book and loose the seals thereof. Ah, but the lion of the tribe of Judah hath prevailed and so forth. So he had to be a kinsman, had to be able to perform and be willing to perform, and he must assume all the obligations. Couldn't just do the land, he had to do the roof thing too. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Song of Songs. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.